Fred is worried about money. In fact, he's always worrying about money. Why? Because if he's honest, he believes that the stuff you can get with money will give meaning, will give value to his life. Bob gets angry. He's in the car, he hits the dashboard, it's a traffic jam. Why? Because he thinks actually that God is not in control. He's not working everything out in conformity with the purpose of his will. His purposes for him aren't good. Sarah is a manic overworker. She's always in the office past half past seven. Why? Well, because if she's honest, she believes that, that she needs to prove to justify herself to her colleagues, her bosses, to herself even, at work. Belinda has taken to flirting with a married man in the office, and she's hoping for more. Why? Well, because she believes that the attention and the intimacy with another person is more than what God can offer her. Brian is paralysed by past sins. He thinks that God will make him pay for them. Why? Well, because if he's honest, he thinks he needs to add something. He must contribute because grace can't be that easy, can it? Is God's plan on the cross really enough? Now, obviously, the people aren't real and the situations are oversimplified, but when you dig down, why do you do what you do? And especially, what is it that means you live unwisely? What is it that means that you sin? What is behind that action or that word? What would you change about you if you could? What what projects, if you like, have you got on the go with God at the moment? Because I think the danger is, if you're a Christian here this morning, and if you've been a Christian for a while, the answer is, well, none really. No projects on the go. Not really worried about how I live and say, who cares why I do what I do? It's just me. Deal with it. We kind of drift into a tired mediocrity. And sin is there, but we just learn to coexist. We just get used to it. We don't ask don't ask too many questions of each other. Maybe we just shape it, we trim it, it looks acceptable on the outside, but inside it's still there. It's like the back garden, that just kind of gets by. You've spent a bit of time out there, you've done a bit of clipping and a bit of trimming, and it looks all right, but really you know you should have pulled the brambles up, you should have tugged the weeds out, you should have used weed killer. It's acceptable. It's respectable. And so with our lives, you say, I've not committed murder. Stop judging me. And Jesus says, but what about that hatred in your heart towards that person? We've just trimmed it back. It just looks respectable. So, well, I've not committed adultery. I've been faithful. But what about those thoughts about that person? 
I don't really covet what they have. I've got no need for a Range Rover. Jesus says, but do you envy them? How stuff turned out for them, their salary, their spouse, their success? It strikes me that sin really matters, but most of the time we're not prepared to ask the questions of ourselves. The what do we do and why do we do it? We just kind of coexist. Just get along with life. But this passage in Ephesians 4 is a passage about change. If you're here just visiting us, maybe you're here for the weekend, maybe you're trying us out, maybe you wouldn't say you're a Christian, you're just kind of looking in on Christian things, you need to know that you've joined us halfway through an argument. Paul has spent three and a half, four and a bit chapters working through God's plan for the world. He's writing to a little church in a town called Ephesus. And two weeks ago, last time, we saw because of Jesus, because of the cross, what God expects us to be, a united people. God has made unity in the church. There was war between us and him, and he's made peace. There was war between us and us, and he's made peace. And so we, he says, we are to keep that peace. We are reconciled, now live in the light of that peace. Do you remember last time I urged you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received? Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Keep the peace, keep the unity that he has made. But also, as well, grow in unity because you are a reconciled people gathered together under the word of God. Do you remember verse 11 in chapter 4? These word ministers. And as that word is opened up, as it does its work, so he expects us to be a growing people, a maturing people, developing. So that verse 13, so that we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Or verse 16, from him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. So we grow and we develop and we mature in the gospel. God's word does its work in our lives. We, we speak the truth in love to one another. It's the kind of culture we're after. And when that sort of stuff happens, then lives are to change. This is a passage about change. These are verses for people like us who have grown tired of fighting sin. Who have grown disillusioned by our lack of progress. And I've been struck as I've been preparing this this last week that I think Paul gives us three broad motivations, three means for change. The first is there in verse 17 to 24, and that is that you have a new identity. So first one, you have a new identity. That's what Paul is saying in these verses here. Do not live like them. Do not live like you used to. That is not you now. That is not who you are. So so verse 17. So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do. 
So remember the situation in Ephesus? We've got a combination church. People from very different backgrounds, reconciled, combined, joined together in unity under the gospel. People from a Jewish background and folk from a a non-Jewish background, a Gentile background, united around the cross. The dividing wall of hostility has been removed and we are one. And so I take it particularly Paul here is addressing the Gentile Christians. And to be a Gentile Ephesian, what would that mean? I take it that would mean you have the mindset, the schooling of being trained in a commercially prosperous city. It was a key trading centre with great communications. There were ports and roads and market and there was money so you could get what you want. But do you remember we also saw it was a religiously diverse city as well. There was a temple of Artemis. There was magic and the occult going on. There were gods. They would give you what you want. And so it's striking as you look at the language of Gentile living as to how self-centred it is. How much it's about getting what you want. And also how it flows from your thinking. It flows from your heart. So look at some of the, um, the phrases he uses. Verse 17, he says, the futility of their thinking. Verse 18, they are darkened in their understanding. The ignorance that is in them. The hardening of their hearts. Verse 19, they have lost all sensitivity. They have given themselves over to sensuality. So as to indulge in every kind of impurity. They are full of greed. And we slightly balk at them. Doesn't sound very uh, politically correct. A bit judgmental from Paul. It feels kind of a bumpy phrase in the direction of the letter so far. Could he not be a bit more encouraging? But I think he's concerned for us to see what's really going on. It's a desperate situation. They are self-centred. And before God they are bankrupt. <coughs> Inwardly, their thinking is far from God, their darkened understanding, their ignorance of God. And so outwardly, their behaviour does not please him. How we think affects how we live. They are full of greed, our translation has it in verse 19. There's, There's a continual lust for more. You know that, that, that appetite that is never quite content? Hearts that are never quite satisfied. It's never quite enough. Always looking for the next thing, the next experience, the next person. Always wanting more. In fact, in 18, they are are separated from the life of God. So I take it in a sense they're looking for life. That's what drives them in this continual lust for more. They're wanting life. They're looking for satisfaction. A satisfaction that they were made for, but looking for it in the wrong place. Back in chapter 2, Paul was already fairly uncompromising when he spoke of them being dead in transgressions and sins. 2 verse 1. It was as if they were like Lazarus, dead and helpless in the tomb, and the gospel of grace was proclaimed to them. And from their death came life. And so Paul says to these Gentile Ephesian Christians, that is not you now. That is not the way of life that you learned. Don't live like that anymore. You're a new person. 
Have a look at 22 to 24. If you're here as a Christian this morning and you're somebody who struggles with sin, then these verses are vital. Verse 22, you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true holiness and righteousness. It's as if we've changed our outfits. We've changed what we wear. We've taken off the old and we're wearing something new. So imagine the the lady pig farmer on her wedding day. And she looks beautiful. She's pristine. She's got stunning clothes. She looks gorgeous. Her hair has been done. And as she walks out of the farm towards the church, she just looks across and sees one of her favourite pigs in trouble. Does she go and help? No. She's wearing the wrong clothes. That is not her today. You're a new person. You don't live like that anymore. Stop getting stuck in with the mud. You're in your wedding dress. Put off your old self and put on your new. You've got a new attitude in your mind, a new way of thinking. You've been taught to live differently. Verse 24, to be created like God in true righteousness and holiness which at least in part is a change from being me-centred to being you-centred. Our God who pours himself out for the sake of others. Not a me-first Christian, but a you-first Christian. But isn't it hard to live like that? We're new people, but living in light of who we are is hard. There's a tension. We saw something of it in week one, if you remember, because the Ephesians, he says, you are in Ephesus, but you're in Christ. They have dual citizenship. Well, so there's something of that tension here in us now. We're in Oxford, in these bodies, but we're in Christ, seated at the right hand of the Father with him. And yet so easily we dance to the old tunes, so we're a freed slave who jumps at his master's voice. With a man with the healed leg who who now limps out of habit. We're like a former prisoner who still wakes up at prison hours. We're like me on my bike when I have my brakes repaired. And I slam them on because it didn't work last week. And you fall off this time. Live as you are now. Put on the the new. Take off the old. It's a battle, isn't it, though? C.S. Lewis says this. He says, the battle begins at the alarm clock. The moment you wake up each morning, all your wishes and hopes for the day rush at you like wild animals. But we must respond in kind. The first job each morning consists in shoving it all back in listening to that other voice, taking the other point of view, letting the other, larger, stronger, quieter life come flowing in. A daily battle to live in light of who we are. 
And because we're new people, because we're not living as we used to, because we're not living like the Gentiles do, because we're not self-centered anymore, because we're new people, so, he says, you can make new decisions. Ah, verse 25 to 29. Verse 25 to 29, you can make new decisions. Someone said this, they said, the battle is made up of thousands of little moments, little choices, Choices between self and service will fall not when we face death, but when we face a traffic jam. And in this section, there are four little snapshots that show us how to live like God in true holiness and righteousness. And in each one, I think you get an alternative, a different way of living, and then a reason for living like that. I want you to see that they are everyday choices. They're just the kind of things that you will face tomorrow, this afternoon. I want you to see that they are about community life, about how we relate to people, how important people are. And I want you to see as well that the motivation for each one, for the alternative way of living, is tied up with the gospel, with God's plan for the world, with the church. Let me read them again, verse 25. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbour, for we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry and do not give the devil a foothold. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their own hands that they may have something to share with those in need. Don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths. But only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. So four alternative ways of living and four reasons for doing them. The first one, verse 25, not falsehood, but rather truth. Why? Because we're members of one body. We love and treasure a God of truth who speaks perfect truth. We're a reconciled people who sit together under the word of God. We speak the truth in love to one another. We're people of truth. Without truth, there's no trust. Because we're members of one body, so speak truth. The problem with lies is they divide us. They disunite us. That's true in any relationship. It's true in church too. Secondly, verse 26 and 27. Not sinful anger, but rather anger. So it could be, the original could be, be angry but don't sin. It's almost as if there's a given that we will be angry. But in that anger, do not sin. Why? Because the devil will get a foothold because the devil divides. I think it will see more of that in chapter 6. We've seen in previous weeks that a united church speaks to the cosmos of God's power and wisdom. So if you were Satan, what would you plan to do? You Divide churches. Undo the power of the gospel. You would bring division and disunity. And so Paul almost permits anger but then restricts it. We, we will get angry with each other. 
Different people with different backgrounds, different stories, different ways of doing things. Anger is not the issue. It's the sin that comes from the anger that is the issue. Because when you, in your anger, you fly off the handle or you you resent them or you walk out on them, then Satan gets his foot in the door. And he loves disunity. He loves to bring division. If it was a real world, he, real word, sorry, he loves de-reconciliation. He loves to divide what God has reconciled. He craves us not living in unity, sniping at each other, not living out the cross. Verse 28, third one. Not stealing but rather make something useful with your hands, something constructive. Why? Well, so you can share with those in need acts of practical service for the good of the weaker parts of the body. Paul says, rather than using your nimble dexterity to take stuff from others, why not use it to make stuff for others? Build up the body. Use the gifts that God has given you for the sake of everybody else. It's interesting, isn't it? The Ephesian church was a pretty motley bunch. It's a great snapshot of the kind of people who seemed to be sat in church there. There were people with a checkered history, known thieves, and yet integrated into the life of the body, serving one another, looking out for the needs of others. And then fourthly, verse 29, fourth snapshot is not unwholesome talk but rather building up others talk why so that it may benefit those who listen and when you see unwholesome here think decaying destructive damaging words that ruin churches it's a broad concept it may be abusive or rude language it may be slander or contempt how we talk of others Maybe it's just words that destroy destroy the life of the body. Don't talk like that. Talk in a way that is encouraging, speaking words of encouragement that build up rather than destroy. So, So, let's take care that banter doesn't go too far. Let's be careful with the kind of things that we try and amuse other people with. Let's be mindful of how we speak of others. Let's be very quick to encourage people, to spur them on, to to speak the truth in love, because when we don't do that, when conversations are unwholesome, it brings death and decay to a church. Now let's choose to speak in a way that may benefit those who listen. So you have a new identity, says Paul, verse 17 to 24. You can make new decisions, says Paul, verse 25 to 29. Now thirdly, you can follow a new example. And I'm going to read from verse 30 through to 5, verse 2. You follow a new example. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. 
Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. I think we've got the same kind of structure again. So a decision as to how not to live, an alternative as to how we should live, and then the reason for it. And at the very heart of this is a huge contrast. Do we live a life of sacrifice, or do we live a life of self? And how do we do that? We have a new example. Do you want to change how you live? Well, Paul says, look at Christ, 5 verse 1. Follow God's example. How? Well, by living a life of love. And what does that look like? Well, for Jesus, it looked like giving up himself as a fragrant offering, as a sacrifice to God for the good of his people. It looks like putting them first. It looks like putting their needs before your needs. It looks like pushing out certain, almost knee-jerk reactions and behaviours and bringing in others. And in 31 to 32, it's the language of broken relationships. We've said there's a sense in which we will get angry, but it's how we deal with that anger, whether we sin in that anger. And so he zooms in on bitterness, rage, anger again, brawling, slander and malice. Bitterness is the way that we chew over and focus on past grievances. The way that we replay that conversation in our minds again and again and again. And we, and we resent them for it. And we can't let go of it. How could they treat me like that? Rage, anger, brawling. The way that we fly off the handle. The way that we get into verbal scraps or or emails, or lots of caps lock, lots of crossness. Rage seems to be a more kind of violent outburst, whereas anger is the slow boiling, the way that we churn away inside, we fester and we seethe. And the brawling here, I think, is more of a sort of shouting type word. Quarrelling, fighting, arguing with people. Slander is how we deal with them when, when they're not there. The, the half-truths that we can spread, the, the reputation that we can ruin. And malice seems to be a catch-all phrase, the desire to get our own back, to want to hurt them, to hurt them because they hurt us, to make them pay for their wrongs. I've got a friend who says that all our anger is righteous anger. It's just that 99% of it is self-righteous anger. We're angry with them not because they've hurt God, but actually because they've hurt us. Are you someone who gets angry? Angry with your spouse or your kids or friends or neighbours or colleagues or housemates or whoever fills your life. I think Paul wants us to see just how inappropriate that kind of anger is. 
when you inwardly burn with anger against them, when you fly off the handle, that is not the kind of life we've been called to. It, it must stop. It destroys churches, destroys relationships. Because rather look at the God whom you serve and see what he is like, verse 32. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. Consistently treating other people as they don't deserve. Showing mercy to them, perhaps when they show malice to you. Rather than holding long-term grudges, keeping short accounts with each other. And forgiving them and doing it again. And again. And again. And when churches get this wrong, the results can be very ugly and very damaging. Previous church I was involved with, we began to get to know people and began to sort of dig a bit deeper into people's lives and structures in the church and why there were sort of different groups and people didn't really mix that much. And we found both sorts of anger. We found the people with short fuses who would just explode in fits of rage and tears because they had been overlooked or they hadn't been kept in the loop or they had been disagreed with them. Everybody was walking on eggshells around them. It turns out they usually got their way because people didn't want to confront them too tired to challenge them. So there were the short fuses, but then the, also the long-term generational anger. Someone treated someone badly 40 years ago, and that may have been a legitimate thing. They may have been wronged, but the family was still holding the grudge. A decision that had been made that not everybody had agreed on. And you could see it because there would be a sort of pleasantness, but there was a distance as well. Something wasn't quite right. There hadn't ever been a sorry. It was a divided church. I want to say, if there are issues in this room, whether short-term surges of rage or longer-term smouldering resentment, it would be great to deal with them. They can ruin lives, marriages, friendships, communities, churches. I encourage you to find somebody to open up to, someone to pray with, someone to, to say sorry to, someone to forgive. Kind, compassionate, forgiving. And you see, when we get these things wrong, and verse 30 says it's not just the other person that we grieve. It's not just horizontal relationships that are ruined. Now, his Holy Spirit, do you remember who he has given us as a deposit and a seal? Do you remember his Holy Spirit who fills us, Jew and Gentile, to form one united temple? God's Holy Spirit is grieved. Particularly, it seems, from harmful speech. 
striking, isn't it? Those little throwaway words that we think very little of. She make a huge deal. I take it if he is the Holy Spirit, then actions and attitudes and words that are unholy can be very damaging. So Paul says, thirdly, you follow a new example. But is it just a question of copying? We can watch video after video after video of David Beckham taking free kicks. And yet I would suggest never get quite as good as him. We can read of Jesus in the gospel again and again and again and try with all our might to be like him and to imitate him, to live a life of love, as Paul says. But will we? It's interesting, isn't it? Jesus is our example. We can't duck that from this passage. makes it very clear. It's pretty unavoidable. Follow God's example, therefore. Live a life of love just as Christ loved us. Costly, other-centered, sacrificial love is how we're to live. Jesus is our example. But he's much more than that. He is our redeemer. He is the one that's transformed us. He's not just a new person that we follow. He is the new foundation for our lives. See, the problem with sermons is that we like to kind of chop up passages to make it kind of memorable or to, you can grasp onto something, you can take it away with you for the week. And the problem with that is we forget where it all started. Because in part it must be about our effort. Because that's what the passage says. You have an example to follow, you have daily choices to make. It's the reality of living the Christian life. But the danger is our heart's tendency cling on to those things, the effort things. And yet, if it's only about effort, if it's only about gritting our teeth and trying really hard, then we're not going to get very far. And we've missed the point of the cross. In fact, many people think that's what the Christian life is about. It's simply about being good, copying Jesus, living like him. but we must remember the starting points. That is what must ring in our ears. That is what we must treasure in our hearts. He's given us new life. That is how we can do these things. We have a new identity. That is how we can live like this. So verse 22, to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. That must be what we treasure. We are new people. That is why we can make new decisions. That is why we can follow a new example. Because he has made us new. 